Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 539. I am your host. Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. 539, man. Oh, just gets crazier and crazier. Hey, man, been doing this so long. Thank you so much for kind of coming on board, sticking with me from the beginning, just starting. Just a bit. Every time I kind of turn on this mic, I just appreciate. Do you know what I mean? Just how long you have been here or years and new. You know what I mean? This whole thing that Starship so far is, you know what I mean? Spring and great stories. Oh, I'm feeling in that kind of a mood today. Yeah. <laughs> Watch a romantic film, I'll be crying my eyes out within seconds. So, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction, The Art of Failure by Robert Dawson. Then it is the end of the month and we have Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, last week on Patreon, we were 408. This week, phew, the rut has stopped. We are 411. So thank you, everyone that's kind of came over and, and, and just put the brakes on. Do you know what I mean? Just, that's nice. Just, whoa, just put the brakes on there. So a big thank you to Courtney Jones. Courtney, well done. Thank you so much. And Phil Culmer. Phil, you are a big star. Phil, I recognise your name from oodles and oodles of times ago. So thank you so much indeed. And Colin Murphy. Colin! Colin, Colin, Colin. Listen, that, oh, the three years, man. Thank you so much. Honestly, I don't know what it is, but this last, year, uh, three weeks 
of you know of life of Starship so far has just seen a a, a load of kind of topsy turvy on Perion. I don't know what it is because I heard rumours that people were leave, leaving that weren't supposed to be leaving. You know, so I don't know. It it was a little. Little, little kind of nervy times. So please, honestly, this is still nervy times. You know what I mean? When, when once the kind of it's people start to pull away. You know what I mean? For whatever reason, we need to kind of keep going. That's the most important thing, man. Just you know, let we just kind of put out this, these great stories and play originals as well, man. Oh man. So thank you, honestly, bottom of my heart. If you can come over two pound, I know I'm. I, you must be sick as chips, but honestly, two two t- pound, two dollars just gets you. You know, it gets you ad free. Doesn't get any of the ads. You can just come over a little bit more. We kind of Red Dwarf the the third season now of Red Dwarf, and man, it's just like it's it's like a holiday watching it, man. It's like, oh good. I've just watched Marooned. This is the second one of the Red Dwarf series three, and. Just, man, the writing, the comic writing is just so tight. It just works so well. Do you know what I mean? Just fantastic. Even after all these years, it is never dated. It is not once dated. It is excellent. Anyway, let me get into the kind of the main fiction. Like I say, it is Robert Dawson, The Art of Failure. Originally appeared in Compelling SF in the March 2016. Robert Dawson teaches mathematics at the Nova Scotia University. He has been writing science fiction for about eight years and is an alumnus of the Sage Hill and Variable Paradise Writers Workshop. When not teaching, doing research or writing, he enjoys orienteering, fencing, cycling, and volunteers with a scout troop. His stories have appeared in Compelling SF, Nature, Futures, Tesseracts and many other periodicals and anthologies. Now this story is narrated by the one and the only Mr. Eric Luke. Eric Luke is the screenwriter of Joe Dante Film Explorers which is currently in development as a remake and the comic book Ghost and Wonder Woman and wrote and directed not-quite-human films for Disney's TV. His current project, Interface, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills, is available free on iTunes and at quillhammer.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Art of Failure by Robert Dawson Narrated by Eric Luke I think you need to see this, ma'am said Chesley Armitage, passing over a messy sheaf of hand-annotated printout. A translation? asked Captain Helga Nilsson. Explain it to me. Armitage smiled. This was what he'd signed on for. The captain asking for his professional opinion as a xenolinguist, rather than sending him to the galley to make coffee. On the last three planets, even the beggars had spoken fluent trade cynic, or so he had been told. The captain and first mate had gone planetside to haggle. He had stayed in orbit, rearranging cargo. The discovery of intelligent aliens on Zavosta, speaking no known language, had improved Armitage's position on the Avalon's unwritten org chart enormously. For several months he had monitored Zavostan audio and video transmissions, and, aided by the ship's powerful computer, deciphered word by painful word the rudiments of the dominant language, while the rest of the crew waited and grumbled. Armitage had his own reasons to want a breakthrough. 
Two years ago, he'd had a comfortable, though poorly paid, postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Elena. Then a friend had talked him into investing his meager savings in a luxury underwater resort. One thing led to another. Six months later, the friend vanished, leaving Armitage deeply in debt to some slightly irregular moneylenders with highly irregular collection methods. Desperate, he'd hitched a ride to Elenaport and signed on as a xenolinguist on a deeply mortgaged tramp trading ship. The ship's partner contract, offering no wages, but a fiftieth share of the profit, had seemed like the quickest way to pay off his debts. But after three unprofitable stops, he could almost feel the jet-seared concrete of the landing field back under his feet, and the knives of the Elena City loan sharks at his throat. The bits about their ancient culture are a bit conjectural, he said, handing her a particularly scruffy sheet. But the proposal is plain. The commanding triad of the Svethax, that's the ship that's been buzzing us for the last day, ma'am, the one you thought might want to trade, present their compliments to you and request that, to celebrate the winter solstice in the fashion appropriate to warriors, we exchange fire with them. Are you sure that translation's correct? Yes, ma'am, said Armitage, professional pride hurt. We shoot at them? and they shoot at us. The captain shook her head slowly. Totally crazy. Apparently, during the solstice festival, low orbits, such as we now occupy, are reserved solely for this activity. They add that if we do not practice uh, politeness, bushido, chivalry, something like that, then they bid us farewell and ask us to move to a less honorable orbit immediately. Or be... The word they use normally applies only to animals, ma'am. Squashed like a bug gets the idea across. At least they're finally paying attention to us, though getting into a fight isn't usually the best opening for talking business. If they wanted to destroy us, they could probably have done so the day we arrived. Among humans, this sort of combat is usually ritualized, ma'am. Like jousting or fist fighting. I was in a fist fight once. In a spaceport bar in Lugade, the captain said. Let me tell you, there was nothing ritualized about it. Bitch wanted to kill me. She ran a finger along a scar on her cheek. You think accepting the challenge is our only hope of trading? Armitage bit his thumbnail. One fistfight was more than his entire lifetime experience of actual combat. I don't know. I'm fairly sure that if we participate in this ritual... It will improve our status with the warrior class, and that ought to help with the rest of Zavostan society, including the Thorium merchants. The only remotely Earth-like world in its system, Zavosta had fabulous reserves of Thorium and other radioactives, enough to make the background radiation level on the planet's surface unhealthy for unprotected humans. As a result, the Avalon had not yet sent a landing party down. And though there was no record of prior contact, the natives seemed oddly incurious about their visitors. All hints of trading had been ostentatiously ignored. Well, we've only got low-power anti-boarding weapons, but if they don't have hyperdrive, our shields are probably more advanced than theirs, she grinned. Tell them we accept. Yes, ma'am. Armitage left the bridge, wishing for once that he was on a really big naval ship say, a Thanatos-class destroyer. 
or just in orbit around a less crazy planet. Vithasa turned from the radio to her two siblings. The strangers have accepted our challenge, she fluttered her three-fingered hands in delight. They are warriors. Jazathet looked dubious. I hope you know what you are doing, he said. You agreed to it too, Shaz, said Fosatha. Don't pick on Vetha. We made that decision as a triad. You can't back out now. I know. But to challenge an alien craft unfamiliar with our ways. Oh, it's a splendid feat, and our tributes will not suffer. But is it perhaps just a little foolhardy? I have explained our customs to them, Vathasa said. And in years to come, it will be remembered that our ship was the first to give a proper warrior's welcome to the travelers from beyond the stars. Well, one way or another, it will be a solstice to remember, said Jazathet. Time to get our battle robes on, my impetuous sister. Vithasa chittered and left the bridge. Half an hour later, Armitage returned. I've translated the rules that they sent us, ma'am. Go on. We enter opposing equatorial orbits with closest approach to each other of, it's about three kilometers. At the first approach, we fire at them. A single shot, no evasive action to be taken. At the next approach, 40 minutes later, they fire at us. We continue until each of us has fired three shots. A little bit like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Never viewed it. What weapon? Attacker's choice. The captain raised her eyebrows. You mean we could use a nuclear drone? Blast them to pieces? Yes, ma'am. That was the exact example I used when I requested clarification. Just as well for them, we don't have one. Once more, she stroked her scar. Presumably, they don't expect us to try to destroy them. They know we're here to trade. Of course, she switched on the ship's intercom. Chen, Orlova, Wang. Strap in, but do not, repeat, do not, fire, except as instructed. Chen called from his place at the fire control station. Maybe you just send them a nice box of chocolates, Captain? Somebody laughed. All other crew take your posts. Prepare for emergency damage control. The captain released the switch, flicked her thumb towards the remaining chair. Armitage, stay here. I may want advice. This time, Armitage would have happily gone off to the galley to make coffee. But he began to strap himself into the chair beside the captain's, with fingers that seemed to have forgotten how the buckles fastened. Before he was through, the Avalon gave a sickening lurch. He hauled himself back into the seat and managed to get the buckle into place before the next surge of acceleration. Once strapped in, he sat there and wondered nervously whether he'd got it right. Right enough, anyhow. No translation was ever perfect. What was that proverb by Umberto Eco that Professor Chetty used to have on his office wall? Translation is the art of failure. That was it. But how much had he failed by? Enough to get them killed? On the bridge of the Svethax, the commanding triad sat wearing their ornate battle robes. Their chairs were turned away from the control panels so that Vathasa and Shazathet could better appreciate Fosatha's recitation of a traditional poem. Sing, spear in my hand. Sing, my comrades, sing. A soft chime sounded. 
Fosatha finished the verse, then swiveled his chair back to the control panels with deliberate insouciance. The others did the same. They sat, silently, watching the monitors, as if in meditation. Suddenly, Vathasa's screen flared white. She flinched involuntarily, almost invisibly. But there was no sound, no impact. What in the names of the three was that? asked Shazathet. A photon pyrotechnic? Are you certain they understood your instructions, Vetha? I assume that it was some unfamiliar alien weapon, she said. But fortunately our shields held. Now, what shall we send them back? Ever been under fire before, Armitage? asked the captain. No, ma'am. He grasped the chair arm to stop his hand from trembling. Well, maybe we won't be. Maybe they took our signal flare in the spirit in which it was intended. But if they do, stay calm. Remember what you said. If this is ritual, they won't be trying to kill us. Armitage hoped he'd been right. Right enough, anyhow. The improvised time-to-next-approach display ticked down inexorably. Each second stretched like rubber. Five seconds. Four. Three. Two. One. The display flicked back to 42 minutes and 28 seconds. Armitage took a shaky breath, wondering whether the aliens had held their fire or just missed. Bang! The explosion was deafening. The hull shook as if it had been hit by a giant hammer. A few status lights turned to amber. Apparently, the Zaphosthans were taking this seriously after all. Ha! the captain said. Just ritual? I think so, ma'am. Surely they must have more powerful weapons than that. I'd imagine so. But why are they escalating at all? I don't know. Perhaps there has to be a certain level of combat. An unpleasant thought struck him. We may even have insulted them with the signal flare. Poor babies. Well, what do you think we should do next? What do we have about the same strength as that? Weapons? Nothing. Let's see. We've got some prospecting charges that come close. Orlova, stand by to fire a number three sampling charge. Are we fighting or collecting rocks, Captain? Orlova said. I don't have any sampling charges armed. We'll arm one fast. I want to knock a few pebbles off our new playmates when we pass them again in half an hour. For twenty minutes, Armitage could hear the fire control team preparing the charge. They were ready with ten minutes to spare and launched it on the next approach. It went off against the Zephosthan shields with a silent flash that briefly dazzled the Avalon's cameras but had no other visible effect. The time-to-approach display reset, and the long wait began again. When the Zephosthan ship flashed past once more, her passage was accompanied by an even larger explosion that shuddered the Avalon to her rivets and left Armitage's ears ringing. This time, a few status lights stayed red and amber. The captain swore under her breath. Armitage could hear crewmates beginning emergency repairs. One more round, Xenolinguist. Should we go to a number four? I don't think that's the point, Captain. If they had wanted to destroy us, they could have done it at any time since we arrived. With respect, ma'am, I suggest another charge like the last. We can't back down, but no need to suggest escalation. You better be right. For half an hour, Armitage sat there, watching the status lights returning to green. Finally, the moment of approach arrived. The second prospecting charge flared, again doing no apparent damage. 
In a minute, they were out of telescope range again. One more shot and it's over, said the captain. Just one more. The seconds were like hours, the minutes years. They sat in silence as the timer counted downward. Finally, the telescope found the other ship, a dot, then suddenly an expanding luminous green sphere, growing to fill the viewport. The lights dimmed for a few seconds as all available power was shunted to the shields, then brightened again. Plasma flare, the captain said and laughed. If they thought we couldn't take that. Well, now we've played their little game. Maybe they'll talk business. What do you think? I'll get right on it, ma'am, said Armitage, unbuckling his safety harness. Talking business. Now that was something he could handle. You were right, sister, Shazatheth said. Wherever they have come from, they are true warriors, and will have a tale to tell down on the ground tonight. Who do you plan to tell it to? Bethasa asked. That pretty navigator from the Nefathi? Perhaps, if she's around. How about you? I'll be at the guild hall with my friends. She fluttered her hands. At least for the first part of the night. After that? Who knows? Shazathet chittered. Good hunting. It seems that we passed the test, ma'am, Armitage said a day later. He pushed his lank hair back behind his ears and blinked his gritty eyes. This had been the most difficult translation yet, full of cultural nuances. A chivalrous combination of courage and restraint. They are honored to consider us as fellow warriors. And the thorium? We didn't come here to play chicken, we came here to trade. Ah, that may be a problem, ma'am. You see, it turns out that commerce is beneath the dignity of the Zephosthan warrior class. Now that our high status has been established, it would be out of the question for anybody to insult us by discussing such matters. Armitage listened in awe to the captain's lengthy and detailed reply. He had never thought of her as a linguist, but she could swear in most languages that he knew, and a few that he didn't. When she finally paused for breath, he raised a hand. With your permission, ma'am, I'm sure that there's some way that we can make this work out. Tabernac à deux étages, she spat. That better be, Armitage. I'm not jumping back to hell in a bloody prime with a hold still full of hollow chips and fire amethyst. The Godfordant Bank would take the ship. Maybe we can tell them that only some of us are warriors. Hmm, I don't buy it. Warriors in a society like this, chauffeuring a lousy merchant around? Does that sound like something they do? Maybe. People do weird things. We can't risk it. Better than I can risk going home empty-handed, Armitage thought. Uh, Captain? Maybe we can just go down and grab some thorium. Warriors in some cultures... Damn it, Armitage, I may have broken every customs relation this side of the Lesser Magellanic Cloud. That's how you make a profit in this business. But I'm not a pirate, and I'm not going to become one now. Let me think about it some more. You'd better. Because if we can't make this trip show a legitimate profit, I'm going to have to get rid of supernumerary crew members, and that's not going to mean the engineer or the astrogator. Zithithasa was leaning on her vermin fork, looking at the sun, and wondering whether to have another go at the Sithasa worms, or go home and change her robes for the last evening of the summer solstice festival.
A booming noise high in the air made her look up. Strange craft was tearing across the sky, a few thousand person heights above. Unlike most planes at that height, it didn't leave a contrail. Slowly, it circled the sky and came back towards her more quietly. It glided lower and lower. At the last minute, it flared, slowed, and made a rough-looking landing right in the middle of the Sathasa crop. The thing was larger than she'd first thought. It tore a wide swath through the young plants. The farm's triad were not going to be happy, but they could hardly blame her. Three hundred heartbeats later, a door opened high up on the hull, and a giant emerged, twice as tall as a person. It wore a white suit, and a transparent bowl covered its head, like a nestling's picture of a space worker. She watched, fascinated, as it climbed down a ladder to the field. Once the giant was on the ground, the ladder retracted and the door closed over it. The giant strode towards her. When it got close, it knelt down, held a small box to its helmet, and spoke in a low rumble, like a distant electrical storm. Simultaneously, a voice came from the box. I come with peace. Please take us to the nearest thorium merchant, the box said. You have destroyed many Sathasa plants, Zithithasa said firmly. The box rumbled in unison. The giant rumbled back. Is sorrow. Payment can happen. It reached into a satchel at its waist and took out a strange purple gemstone, a thumb-length across which it handed to her. But needing is that we find a thorium merchant. And it must quickly, because my air is few. Perhaps you might try the metalmongers on the street of the Seven Waterfalls, she pointed the way. It is about a thousand person heights from here. Is gratitude. The giant bent at the waist, straightened, and strode toward the town. Zithithasa looked back and forth between the stone and the ruined Sithasa. The stone was surely worth much more than the lost plants. She fluttered her hands and chittered happily to herself. She practiced the three virtues as well as most people, and she'd certainly see that the triad got fair compensation. But it was upon her, not them, that fortune had smiled today. She turned and walked back to her hut. Tonight she'd put on her finest clothes, join the solstice celebration, and buy drinks for all her friends. Tomorrow she'd figure out what to tell the triad. Behind her, the shuttle took off again, spiraling upward in quiet mode, until it was high enough to unleash the full fury of its jets without disturbing those below. Deep in speculation on the value of her jewel, she did not return to watch it, nor the tall, white-suited figure who was climbing over the fence onto the roadway. The captain looked through the list of useful Zephosthen radio frequencies and picked one that Armitage had tagged as government-slash-official. She sent a ready-to-transmit signal, then looked at the list on the computer screen. English translations of Zephosthen phrases that he had programmed into the computer. At the top of the list, I apologize, but one of our prisoners has escaped. A handwritten footnote pointed out that the word for prisoner was applicable only to Zephosthens of low status. A warrior might be killed with honor, but for one warrior to imprison another was an unforgivable gaucherie. 
reflecting poorly on the captor's entire clan. She touched the screen, sending the message. The computer made a noise like a catfight. A few seconds later, the Zephosthan response crackled and hissed back. We will be glad to exterminate the wretch as a minor favor to our honored visitors. She hastily picked a response. No, please do not do that. It must be tried on its homeworld before it is executed. The Zephosthan agreed. Of course, their guests' customs must be followed, if possible. How could they assist? My two siblings and I believe that it is loose on the surface of your noble world. Approximate coordinates, thus and so. It is not dangerous. It is a merchant of low class. Help to recapture it would be much appreciated. The Zephosthan response assured her that steps would be taken. The captain stretched back in her chair and buzzed the galley for a coffee, hoping that young Armitage knew his stuff. The office of the metalmonger's executive triad was domed, almost two meters high in the middle. The wall-slash-ceiling was pale azure at floor level, shading to deep indigo at the zenith. Pretty, but claustrophobic as hell, Armitage thought. He had just finished negotiating with the three little Zephosthans for five million credits worth of isotopically pure thorium for immediate delivery. The dickering had stretched his Zephosthan vocabulary to the limit. He was out of reach of the ship's computer, and the box in his hand could do nothing more than raise the pitch of human speech for Zephosthan ears and vice versa. But they had finally reached a deal, and the agreed price in gem-quality fire amethysts glittered between them on the table. Behind him there was an imperious knock, followed immediately by the sound of a door being flung open. Armitage followed the merchant's eyes, then slowly raised his hands in the air and turned around, his fingertips brushing the ceiling. In the door stood three Zephosthans. Like the merchants, they barely came to Armitage's waist, but what they lacked in height they made up for with lethal-looking silver sidearms. One of them wore a plain gold necklace that Armitage recalled as indicating some sort of rank. It moved its lips, but no sound came out. Try speaking into this, Armitage said, and slowly lowered his hand holding the transposer toward the squad leader. It looked at the box carefully with its big soulful eyes before it spoke. Its dialect was one that Armitage was not used to, and he did not understand more than a third of what it said. But odd words here and there suggested some combination of arrest, rebuke, and getting the hell out of Dodge. It gestured with its sidearm toward the door. Armitage moved awkwardly toward the door, ducking as the ceiling lowered. He waddled bent-kneed along the low, twisting corridor, banging his helmet repeatedly on the uneven, arched ceiling. Finally, he reached the open air, stood up, and stretched. The leader of the squad emerged behind him, followed by the other two cops and the curious metalmongers. Something planet immediately, the leader said. Something large room, chamber, off planet, something height, area, volume, something... Sorry, can you repeat that? Slowly, Armitage pieced the unfamiliar dialect together. He was required to leave the planet, but he would not fit into the passenger cabin of one of their spaceships. Was his suit vacuum-proof so that he could be shipped as cargo? No, he said. It is for radiation only. The warriors of something had requested that he be something. But as this was impossible... What do you mean impossible? Armitage yelped. 
Everything had gone smoothly so far. What was wrong now? The leader lifted its sidearm from its holster and pointed it upward in the general direction of Armitage's navel. Armitage was suddenly aware of how close and sweaty the inside of a radiation suit could be. There was a sound in the distance, a faint scream of abused air growing nearer and louder. The leader lowered its weapon and looked up as the shuttle roared overhead, hardly clearing the taller buildings. See? Armitage said, his voice almost steady. See? They have come to take me away. The warrior giant bustled up to guard leader Sisypha, wearing a suit like the prisoners. Its gestures suggested that it would like the insolent merchant return to it immediately. Unfortunately, Sisypha could understand nothing of what it said. Even hearing it was difficult without the strange box that the prisoner carried. Like the prisoner, the Captain Giant made only low rumblings. Even with the box, though, the warrior giant's speech was incomprehensible. Perhaps the box only raised the pitch of the rumblings and did not translate. Sisypha turned to the prisoner and managed to indicate that it was to act as translator, upon pain of immediate execution. He had his doubts as to the prisoner's intelligence, but it did seem to have picked up a few sentences of the local language. Yes, sir, the prisoner bowed. The first assistant requests that I be handed under to him presently, he firmly promising to take me off-planet and spare you the inconveniencing of my unstable self. Sthisipha pondered the situation. Tell it that we are grateful. The prisoner and the warrior rumbled to each other. Then the prisoner turned to Sthisipha. It is other matters. After my trial and execution, the confiscation of my property must be made by a court on my world. The ship's triad must grasp the thorium, which this unworthy one is just buying, so that this may be properly happen. Its mouth twitched with embarrassment. Sthisipha thought carefully. There was merit in the warrior giant's request. The prisoner had apparently purchased the thorium legally, and its fugitive status was a matter for its own people. He dispatched one of his underlings to the metalmongers. A few thousand heartbeats later, an electric tractor appeared, pulling a train of six carts, each loaded with rectangular boxes containing thorium ingots. The shuttle extended its cargo ramp, and workers began to load them into the shielded hold. Sthisipha gestured with his weapon. You too, prisoner. Make yourself useful. The prisoner obeyed with fawning eagerness. Sthisipha watched as it meekly carried the ingots, and could not help comparing it with the warriors of its kind, whose valiant solstice combat two days before was still the talk of the whole planet. Finally, the last ingot was stowed away. The prisoner was escorted into the cabin of the shuttle, the doors closed, and the shuttle took off. They are a noble people, said Sthisipha to one of his underlings, as the shuttle shrank to a dot in the sky. Our world is honored by their visit. It is a pity that their lower classes are so unsatisfactory. The guard fluttered her hands and agreed. Armitage followed Chen through the shuttle's narrow airlock into the comparatively spacious loading bay of the Avalon. Both of them were still weak with laughter. The captain was waiting inside. Well done, Armitage, the captain said. Take ten minutes to clean up, then meet me in the computer room. I've got one more job for you. 
Her tone of voice, almost apologetic, put him on guard. Uh, what's that, ma'am? You got us a great rate on that thorium. I'll be able to pay the bank off. And there'll be something over to divide among the crew. But we can't pull this stunt off again. I guess not. Lose a prisoner every trip. People start to think you're careless. But we're the first contact ship. If we register pioneer trading rights, we get a 10% royalty on the net from every other league trader here for 16 standard years. That's where the real money is. That would be one holy shit ton of cash, Armitage, she said almost reverently. And your share is one-fiftieth, like with any other profits of this voyage. Armitage wondered briefly what twenty holy shit kilos came to in convertible credits and decided, based on the captain's tone of voice, that it was probably more than enough. So, how do I come in? To qualify for pioneer trading rights, we have to have a sole claim at the moment of filing, otherwise nobody gets anything. Orlova tells me another ship's appeared on the hyperscan, heading this way. If they get within the orbit of the outermost planet before we have the forms sent off. We're out of luck. She reckons we have about sixteen hours. Can't somebody else do it, ma'am? That paperwork has to be done in about eight different languages. And if we make a mistake, there'll be no time to refile. Those rights are worth millions, Armitage. And a computer translation's only as good as the person directing the computer. We can't afford to fail. Now get moving. As hot water sluiced off his body, Armitage tried to estimate how long the filing would take. Was Peninsular Zophurian, with its six mutable genders and inscrutable honorifics, one of the languages? Given how close Zephostha was to the Zephurian extended hegemonic region, it seemed all too likely. He groaned. There was no time to waste. He slapped the shower control. The water turned off and the hot air drying jets began to roar. When he got to the computer room, the captain was waiting impatiently. She waved him to a seat. Most of the law manuals and forms are in searchable digital form on the ship's computer. Most? Well, there's the revealed mercantile code. She indicated a stack of three thick purple books on the desk. The Zephyrians consider it sacred and don't permit it to be digitized, so you'll have to use a printed copy. She unclipped a plain stainless steel pendant from a chain around her neck and laid it on the desk beside him. And that ship has my personal signature code and the ship's trading license and papers. Anything else you'll need? Armitage stared for a moment at the stack of books and sighed. Well, ma'am, I haven't eaten all day. If you're going past the galley, I could definitely use a sandwich and a pot of coffee. She paused for an instant, blinked, and grinned. I'll have someone send them up. And I think there might be a leftover portion of starberry mousse in the fridge. Think you could manage that, too? And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Roberts. Roberts, uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Oh, oh, yes, yes. More of the same, please. And Eric, just nail that man. Wow. Hey, honestly. A little round of applause, honestly. Appreciate it, Eric. I really do. Thank you so much. Well, now it is the end of the month. And <laughs> Jim's had to hold his hand up and say sorry. What he says is his computer that he's 
he's record and it's actually quite you know quite sweet as well. What he's recorded science news on from the beginning has Betsy. <laughs> Did he call her Betsy? Has given up the ghost and has died, and she's she's in the repair bay as we speak. And Jim's hoping that you know for the next show she'll be out. But and it actually wants little. <laughs> Jim must be just holding his hand. You know the sound quality. What Jim says is. Like, you know, like next time it'll be all up and running, but he had to kind of borrow a computer and the software that was on wasn't, you know what I mean? It's excuses, Jim, excuses, excuses, excuses. But it's like Jim's at the bottom of this well. And what it, what it is, you know, what Jim said there, he's been recording on, you know, since kind of time memorial, since, you know, Star Show so far began. But it sounds like the early podcast years, you know, where there was this kind of echoey tin at the bottom of a well. Remember those days? Jim's going back to those days. And what's great as well, you know, from the content as well, we're on Idiot Scientist of the Month there. It's just, Jim, that should be a podcast by itself. It should be, get that, you know what I mean, get that dot com down and get that doing as a podcast. Idiot Scientist of the Month. It's just fantastic. Listen, have a listen to Jim. Greetings and Lolo Plackian ruminations, my retroactively portricious listeners. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to this May 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this loosely plated science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Wow, you guys really like the idiot scientist of the month shtick, don't you? I've gotten several of you writing to me, at least three of you, Mary Foreman, Paul Willman, and Lior Sar. I'm sorry about the pronunciation, Lior. You mentioned the same story about the same poor schmuck to me in writing. Uh, a fellow by the name of Dr. Aaron Trawick. Trawick was the CEO of Ascendance Biomedical. He died last month at the age of 28. As I told you guys in my emails to you, I have no qualms about making fun of live making poops, but I try to respect the dead. If you listeners are curious about Trawick, then you can Google him. However, I'm not going to discuss him directly. Instead, I have some general things to say about these so-called body hacking and biohacking movements. First, our idiot of the month. I will not honor him by calling him a scientist. I'm sure those of you who live down under have heard of this particular nitwit, but for the rest of the listening audience, you're in for a treat. 
The story is in regard to an Australian biohacker whose name is, get this, Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow. Yes, that's his legal name. And that, in itself, is a clue to his deep, deep mental instability. Mr. Meow Meow, like many commuters, forgot his transit card at home far too often and had to buy extra tickets for his commute. He got so annoyed, he had a chip from a transit pass implanted in his hand. The chip allowed him to tap on and off trains in Sydney with just a wave of his wrist. Whoa, like the dude made himself into a cyborg. Well, he did the magic trick for a while, that is, as a cyborg, until last August, when the transit officers handed him a fine for traveling without a valid ticket, despite still having $14.07 still left on his chip. This May, Mr. Meow Meow went to court on charges of traveling without a valid ticket and failing to produce a ticket for inspection. The battle, though, is likely far from over. At the heart of the case is not just whether one man was within the bounds of the law when he took apart a transit pass and implanted it in his hand, but whether governments have the authority to intervene in the technology we put into our bodies, and how laws will adjust to the rapid expansion of implanted technology. Meow Meow told the court, I pay my fare. I tap down just like anyone else. Law isn't caught up with the technology. That's all this case was. Meow Meow happily brags he's a biohacker and a cyborg. Not only is he the first nut in Australia to implant electronics in his body, a la Tony Stark, he is also known for starting the country's first community biolab and running for federal election as a candidate from Australia's Science Party. As my daughter would say, OMG. A year ago, Meow Meow cut the chip out of his Opal Transit Pass. He encased it in a biocompatible plastic covering, which actually is kind of smart, and implanted it under his skin of his left hand. A few months after the transit inspectors slapped him with a fine, transport for New South Wales cancelled his card. The Opal card terms of use spell out that users must not, quote, misuse, deface, alter, tamper with, or deliberately damage or destroy the Opal card, unquote. All Opal cards, the term says, are the property of Transport for New South Wales. Meow Meow pled guilty because he did, of course, alter his card, and he did not have a physical transit pass to show the inspection officers. In court, his attorney argued that his client's implant was simply ahead of the law and asked that a conviction not be recorded. A local court magistrate didn't buy that, saying people have to comply with the law as it stands. And they should have a conviction and a fine of $220 in Australian dollars for breaching the Opal Card's terms of use, and he was ordered to pay the legal fees. The magistrate did not issue a conviction for failing to produce a ticket for inspection. Meow Meow told the press, I respect the magistrate's decision, but it wasn't the outcome I would have liked. In another interview, Meow Meow said, I didn't try and game the system or swindle free rides. I just paid the way that the legislature didn't anticipate. Mastercards and mobile phones can tap on. This indicates a direction technology is headed. I seriously believe that by the end of 2019, I will be able to travel with my implant. And here's where I start to get upset. 
There is a growing movement of people, like Mr. Meow Meow, interested in augmenting their bodies with technology, or worse, by injecting biological interventions that will supposedly benefit them in some ways. There was a body hacking conference, Body Hacks 2018, in February in Austin, Texas. Among the attendees was Aaron Trawick, who we mentioned earlier, and also DARPA Director of Biological Technologies, Dr. Justin Sanchez. Sanchez spent part of his time on the stage telling the hacking audience about the U.S. government plans to prevent global pandemics by turning the body into a bioreactor and to restore memory through technologies like brain-computer interfaces. However, Sanchez's main job was basically to warn those idiots that the government will no longer just sit back and let them do whatever they want in their garages. This was an audience of people who have decided that the formal drug research and approval process is too cumbersome and are using themselves as guinea pigs for increasingly more ambitious biology experiments. In short, they are idiots. Sanchez warned, We may be comfortable with the risk today, but are there risks we haven't considered? You need to think deeply. If you do have access to it, that doesn't mean you should use it. There's many levels of safety and security for the Internet, for example, that we as a society are struggling with. We are in the early days of biological technologies. Let's think about how to do this in a responsible way now, so that as technology does mature, we're better prepared to use it in a way that will benefit society later. Unquote. Sanchez says he has concerns that if biohackers fail to think through all the consequences of their work, people could wind up getting hurt. Some of DARPA's newer programs, in fact, are intended to come up with ways to offset the consequences of biological research gone wrong, like the Safe Genes Program, which is exploring ways to reverse genetic engineering, among other things. DARPA was at the Body Hacking Conference, he said, in hopes of spurring a dialogue about approaching biohacking safety. Now, frankly, I have a hate-hate relationship with the biohacking community. I have for years. There's a wonderful bit of dialogue in a story that I recently read that sums up my distaste quite nicely. It comes from the book The Magician King by Lev Grossman. These are brilliant books, by the way, that the TV show The Magicians is based on. The book, by the way, is far, far superior to the show in terms of tone, depth, characterization, and motivation. Anyway, let me set up this little excerpt for you. So Quentin Coldwater is a classically trained magician who graduated from a magical university called Breakbills. He spent a full five years there, and unlike Harry Potter, his studies were not interrupted by anyone who shall not be named for most of that time, unlike the TV show from which I think no one has graduated yet. Quentin's friend, Julia, was rejected from the school after flunking the entrance exam and got her magical education on the streets in less than classical environments. In this excerpt, Quentin is being introduced for the first time to the idea that there are people out there in the world experimenting with magic who have not had a formal education in the subject. <laughs> I'm sure you see where this is going. Quentin stopped on the threshold. Julia, Quentin said, tell me where we are. Haven't you guessed yet? She practically glittered with pleasure. She was relishing his discomfort. This is where I got my education. 
This is my break bills. It's the anti-break bills. These people do magic? They try. Please tell me you're joking, Julia. He took her arm, but she shook it off. He took it again and pulled her back down the stairs. I'm begging you, please, Julia. I am not joking. Julia's smile was wide and predatory. The trap had sprung and the prey was writhing in it. These people can't do magic, he said. They're not. They're not. There's no safeguards. They're not qualified. Who's even supervising them? No one. They supervise each other. He had to take a deep breath. This was wrong. Not morally wrong, just out of order. The idea that just anybody could mess around with magic, well, for one thing, it was dangerous. That's not how it worked. And, and who were these people anyway? Magic was his. He and his friends were the magicians. These people were strangers. They were nobodies. Who told them they could do magic? As soon as Breakbills found out about this place, they'd shut it down with a damned vengeance. They'd send a SWAT team, a flying wedge with Dean Fogg at the head of it, to just get rid of them all. Okay, there you have it. Quentin was horrified at the so-called hedge witches and their safe houses. And so am I with the biohacking movement and their garages and biohacking spaces. With a classical education in science, you gain the right to experiment because you know the dangers of what you're working with. You are taught all the rules to keep yourself and others safe from your experiments. Who has taught these biohackers anything? Did they pay their dues? Did they spend years being taught the ground rules for mucking about in the realms of study in which humans have little business? And the simple answer is no. And I'm not the only one terrified by these bozos. Back in February, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, moved to regulate the work done by these so-called rogue genetic engineers. They've now released a revised draft of their guidelines for regulating animals with intentionally altered genomic DNAs. Prepared by the FDA's Center for Veterinary Medicine, the guide covers animals that have been produced using any genome editing technologies or genetic engineering. The document reads as so, quote, This guide addresses animals whose genomes have been intentionally altered using modern molecular technologies which may include random or targeted DNA sequence changes, including nucleotide insertions, substitutions, deletions, or other technologies that introduce specific changes to the genome of the animal. This guidance applies to the intentionally altered genomic DNA in both the founder animal in which the initial alteration event occurred and the entire subsequent lineage of animals that contains the genomic alteration, unquote. This proposed regulation by the FDA would allow the biohackers to keep working in their makeshift labs, but it would require them to have their genetically modified products invented by the FDA in the same way that the agency regulates any new drugs. The biohackers argue that the FDA is made up of stooges for the big corporations who want to make all the money and keep the breakthroughs for themselves. I argue that even if that was true, the biohackers have no right to be messing around in areas where they are not experts. And I do not believe that the FDA is going too far. If these hackers 
or making nuclear bombs in their garages, would the federal government stop them? Of course. Well, I see no difference here with these gene-hacking nincompoops. Yes, I am intractable on this. But, Dr. Camp, these biohackers process self-regulation, they say, with strong ethics and safety policies that make sure none of their experiments harm people or the environment. How can you be so mean, man? Well, I can be mean because I keep seeing examples of how these self-regulating ethical experimenters are brain-dead idiots. Here's another example. You may want to skip ahead five minutes if you're listening to children, because this is unfortunately kind of R-rated. Ben Greenfield is apparently a cult figure among fitness fanatics, a guru to those who devote themselves to meticulously monitoring their own biometric data for insight into their personal health. He has more than 130,000 fans that follow him online. Now he may become known for something entirely different, injecting himself with stem cells in the hopes of making his penis bigger. Greenfield said in an online interview, quote, I want to take care of my body in the best way possible, having fun with using what science has given us to make the body better. Greenfield is something of a human science experiment who's willing to try almost anything in the name of quote-unquote getting gripped. He has subjected himself to platelet-rich plasma injections, stem cell injections in other parts of his body, sound wave therapy, all in search of bodily enhancement and better health. In November, Greenfield visited a company called U.S. Stem Cell. Now, this is a controversial clinic in Florida. And he did this to have his penis injected with his own stem cells. If the name of the clinic seems kind of familiar, that's because it's the same Florida clinic that last year unintentionally blinded three patients in a clinical trial of an unproven stem cell therapy. Now, that's horrifying. What's even worse is that these people aren't even supposed to be biohackers. They're just incompetent. In August 2017, the FDA sent U.S. Stem Cell and its chief scientific officer, Dr. Kristen Camella, a warning letter for, quote, marketing stem cell products without FDA approval and for significant deviations from current good marketing practice requirements, including some that could impact the sterility of their products, putting patients at risk, unquote. The U.S. Stem Cell Clinic, the FDA said, even tried to interfere with their investigation by denying agency employees access to facilities. Not good. In an online video, Greenfield and Dr. Camella explained how the procedure worked. Greenfield had U.S. stem cell isolate stem cells from his body's fat cells. Then, said Greenfield, those stem cells were injected into the, quote, meat of the tissue of the penis. Several early-stage studies have shown that stem cells show promise in treating erectile dysfunction in men. And, in fact, one such study from 2016, in which adipose-derived stem cells were used to treat 17 men who suffered from erectile dysfunction from prostate cancer treatment, uh, actually seemed to help them. Uh, the stem cells were injected into the base of their limited side effects, and 8 of the 17 were able to successfully get erections and have sex again after that. Now, our hero Greenfield, however, is seeking to enhance his manhood 
rather than to fix any medical problem. There is no evidence that this treatment, which can help erectile troubles, can actually enhance the penis at all. I mean, evidence it could enhance a man without any such issues is pretty much non-existent. Even if the procedure is actually safe, there is still a risk of complications, like infection, all for a procedure that has little chance of working. Greenfield, however, is deluded. He said online several days after the procedure that his penis has grown and that his erections were bigger. He insists the anatomical changes cannot be denied, although he has not actually taken out a ruler to measure, he says. He says, I can tell. Uh, yeah. You know what? My hand would be bigger, too, after it was swollen and infected by a questionable injection. So, yeah, I'm sure you can tell. Greenfield does call himself a biohacker and is a big believer in stem cells. He's had them injected into his knee, his hips, to help him recover from injuries, he says, and that it was successful. He's also injected them into his arm as a performance enhancer at home. With the help of stem cells, he says, by the time he is 40 in a few years, he hopes to have attained the biological age of 25. He says, quote, Of course there's a risk with these injections, but the payoff in terms of health is very big. You can't always wait for things to be thoroughly studied. You only live once, after all. Unquote. Yes, Mr. Greenfield, and you only die once, as a hideously deformed abomination of nature as well. Sorry, after all that, we only have time for a couple of actual stories. Let's let's just get to them, okay? I I should just stop with the biohacking stuff right now. Alright, first, Stephen Hawking's last research paper. What did genius Hawking say in his very last published paper? I won't pretend to understand this entirely, but it looks like Hawking's final research paper suggests that our universe may be one of many similar to our own, and that there is a mathematical limitation on how different parallel universes can be from this one. The study was submitted to the Journal of High Energy Physics ten days before Hawking died. Of course, it was accepted immediately. I mean, I suspect that just having Hawking's name on a paper is pretty much an automatic acceptance in, in any journal, no matter what the topic is, I suspect, also. Way back in the 1980s, Hawking, along with another scientist, Dr. James Hartle, developed an idea about the beginning of the universe. Their math resolved a difficulty with Einstein's theory that suggested that the universe began nearly 14 billion years ago, but said nothing about how it began. The Hartle-Hawking theory used a different idea called quantum mechanics to explain how the universe arose from nothing. Their idea tied up one loose end that created another, actually an infinite number of loose ends. And here's the problem. The Hartle-Hawking theory implied that the Big Bang would create not just one universe, but an endless number of them. Some universes, according to the Hartle-Hawking theory, would be very like our own, perhaps have Earth-like planets, societies, even individuals similar to the ones in our universe. Other universes would be subtly different, perhaps with Earth-like planets where the dinosaurs were not wiped out, and there would be universes completely unlike our own with no Earths, perhaps 
no stars and galaxies and different laws of physics. It sounds weird, but the equations in the theory make these scenarios theoretically possible. A crisis arises in the analysis, because if there are infinite types of universes with infinite variations in their laws of physics, then the theory can't predict what kind of universe we would find ourselves in. Hawking joined forces with Dr. Thomas Hertog uh, to try to uh, resolve the paradox. And Hawking's final paper is the fruit of 20 years of work with Hertog. It has solved the puzzle by drawing on a new mathematical technique developed to study string theory. And those techniques enable researchers to view physics theories in a different way. And the novel assessment of the hartle hawking theory in this new paper has restored order to a hitherto chaotic multiverse. The new Hawking-Hertog assessment, as it's called, indicates that there can only be universes that have the same laws of physics as our own. The conjecture means that our universe is typical, and so observations we make from our viewpoint will be meaningful in developing our ideas of how other universes emerge. Mind-bending as these ideas are, they will be of real help to physicists as they develop a more complete theory of how the universe came into being. Hertog says, quote, The laws of physics that we test in our labs did not exist forever. They crystallized after the Big Bang when the universe expanded and cooled. The kind of laws that emerge depend very much on the physical conditions at the Big Bang. One tantalizing implication of these findings is that they might help researchers detect the presence of other universes by studying the microwave radiation left over from the Big Bang, although I do not think it will ever be possible to hop from one universe to another." Unquote. Okay, last story of the night. I was disturbed by this because of personal experience. As I have previously discussed on the show, my dad has Alzheimer's. And what I have not discussed, because it seemed irrelevant, was that my dad is also, being Italian, is addicted to drinking espresso. Before he broke his hip a few months ago, and we had to place him in a care facility, my mother made sure that he was pretty much constantly supplied with that black espresso that he loved so much. Well, that may not have been the best thing for him. That may actually have made the condition worse, according to this new study. It's well known that memory problems are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's. However, this dementia is also characterized by psychiatric symptoms, which may be strongly present already in the first stages of the disorder. The symptoms include anxiety, apathy, depression, hallucinations, paranoia, late-day confusion, and these are manifested in different manners depending on the patient and are considered the strongest sources of distress for patients and caregivers, and I can certainly attest to that. Caffeine has recently been suggested as a strategy to prevent dementia, both in patients with Alzheimer's and in the normal aging processes as well. This is due to the action of uh, blocking molecules, uh, adenosine receptors, which may cause dysfunction and diseases in old age. However, there is some evidence that caffeine may have the exact opposite effect and actually make things worse. Dr. Raquel Beta-Coral of the Universitat 
Autotoma de Barcelona in Spain, investigated normal aging mice and familial Alzheimer's models. And her studies were published uh, last month in the journal Frontiers in Pharmacology. Beta Coral says, quote, The mice develop Alzheimer's disease in a very close manner to human patients with early onset form of the disease. They not only exhibit the typical cognitive problems, but also a number of the psychiatric problems as well. This makes them a valuable model to address whether the benefits of caffeine will be able to compensate its putative negative effects. In the study, they simulated a long oral treatment with a very low dose of caffeine, about a third of a milligram per mil, which is equivalent to three cups of coffee a day for a human. And they did this to study the question, um, which is relevant for patients with Alzheimer's, but also for the aging population in general, that in people would take years to be solved because we would need to wait until patients were actually aging. So it's, it's a bit of a problem actually doing this study with people. But just remember, you do the study in mice, and you're not always sure that it applies over to people. So we've had this discussion before. Anyway, the results indicate that caffeine alters the behavior of healthy mice and worsens the psychiatric symptoms of mice with Alzheimer's disease. Now, the researchers discovered significant effects in the majority of the study variables, and especially in relation to something called neophobia, which is a fear of everything new, uh, also anxiety-related behaviors and emotional behaviors and, and cognitive flexibility. In mice with Alzheimer's disease, the increase in neophobia and anxiety-related behaviors exacerbates their learning and memory and strongly influences their anxiety but they got little benefit from the caffeine. Beta Corral states, quote, Our observations of adverse caffeine effects in an Alzheimer's disease model, together with previous clinical observations, suggest that an exacerbation of symptoms may partly interfere with the beneficial cognitive effects of caffeine. These results are relevant when coffee-derived new potential treatments for dementia are to be devised and tested. In other words, if we are going to test the good things that coffee does, we better be aware of the bad ones first. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't inject anything into your nether regions. Don't try universe hopping, at least according to Hertog, it won't work. Watch that caffeine intake, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, sir, there we go, there we go. Thank you so much, lad. Get Betsy back on track. <laughs> it's, it's only nice for a certain time to kind of listen to reminisce of like sound quality of, of, of 10 year ago podcasters where we used to do it with kind of string and beta max tape recorders. So, yes, thank you indeed, lad. Well, that is it. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> that sound, man. <laughs> Like shocking, isn't it? You know what we used to. If you listen to kind of the, the first, you know, Starship sofas, man, it was the same thing. No one had a clue how to. You know what I mean? It was only actually professional audio engineers, you know, that used to give tips away, and it used to kind of eventually sprinkle down. And we used to work these things out, but those were the heady days of the early podcasting pioneers. <laughs> Jim's reliving it there, two thousand and eighteen. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, listen, do us a favour, man. Come over and just support her, man. Honestly, you know what? There's no, no, I don't have to get a waffle. You know what you get. You get, no, you get ad-free, you know what I mean? That's good enough for you. Surely $2, you know, $3 Red Dwarf. It just... It looks after her. It looks after her. Do you know what I mean? It's it's nothing that they kind of just come on and for $2 and just secure the show. That's all we're on about. Until next week, look after yourselves. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.